Amen. If you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. First Chronicles chapter 10 says this, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died. Thus Saul died, he and his three sons, and all his house together. When all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. The Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. But when all Jabesh-Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. And they buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord put him to death, turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Uh, well, I was doing a little bit of research this week about um, the ancient Mayan civilization. And uh, whenever I thought about the Mayan civilization, I thought about kind of like a small little people group from Central America and I thought that was the Mayans. Um, but I was surprised to learn the Mayan people group was enormous. Um, they did a study a few years ago where they did uh, laser topography. And they had this program called LIDAR. And so they took this airplane over these dense jungles where you, you know, all you could see is trees from above. But they scanned the surface and they found 61,000 Mayan structures. Um, they had an incredible civilization. They had a, a complex uh, watering system. They had um, a defense wall. They had thousands and thousands of roads. Uh, previously, scientists had estimated that the Mayan people group numbered about 5 million people. Now some researchers are suggesting that it was maybe 10 to 15 million of them. Uh, just for some context, you think about area in Niagara County, times 10, that was about the size of the Mayan people group. So they were a massive people group, and not only were there a lot of them, but they were technologically uh, very advanced. They had a complex calendar. Uh, you may have been familiar about that because of kind of the end date of that, and people had thought that maybe that was the end of the world. Um, they were skilled in astronomy, skilled in mathematics. Uh, they had incredible pyramids, incredible uh, architectural wonders, uh, they had their own sports. Um, there's a game that was kind of like basketball that they created. They had their own art. They had their own culture. It was an incredible civilization. But what was remarkable about them, as you get to about the 8th century, end of the 8th century, early 9th century, all of a sudden you see them kind of disappearing. And while they never disappeared completely, 
uh, it got to a point where all these big cities that they had, hundreds of thousands of people, they just were vacant, became ruins. Nobody knows what happened to them. Scientists have a number of different theories of, of what happened to lead to their decline, but nobody really knows. As we're looking at the book of Chronicles, um, it's written kind of from a place of decline. Uh, they're still in exile. The Israelites are in exile. They've sinned against God. They've been sent away. And now this king, the king of Persia, is allowing them to go back to Israel to rebuild the temple. And so they, they're back there, but it's kind of in shambles. And the thing that's different about the biblical record is the biblical record, the writers know why this happened. And so the chronicle wants to kind of explain what happened, what are the things that led to uh, the downfall of Israel. And you think about chronicles, and chronicles in, in sec, First and Second Samuel kind of parallel one another. So it's interesting to see what things uh, the authors tended to emphasize or tended to leave out. And what's interesting is if you look at Samuel... Uh, there are several different chapters talking about the life of Saul. You talk about his uh, ascendancy to the throne. There's a number of things that happened in his life, some good things, many bad things. But it tells a lot about the life of, of Saul. You get to Chronicles, there's one chapter. And this one chapter kind of starts with his demise. Uh, there's really not anything that's good that's said about Saul or, or how he was chosen as king. It's all bad. And I think to the, part of the reason may be because to the chronicler, Saul isn't really that important. He's not really that important. He's kind of cosmically irrelevant to the writer of Chronicles. It's not about Saul. The only reason I think he includes Saul is to kind of set the stage for why David is necessary, why the new kingship was needed, that this man chosen, after God, uh, chosen by the, the people, Saul, failed, and it kind of sets the stage for David. Um, and what Saul kind of does is he serves as a foil. Uh, you may or may not remember back to English class, a foil uh, is a character who is presented as a contrast to a second character so as to point to or show to an advantage some aspect of the second character. So Saul is shown, he's, he describes all of these negative things about Paul to kind of set the contrast and set the stage for King David. And, in, and we look at the, the way that the author writes about, the, about Saul, and it was a complete disaster. He's, he's introduced as being on the run, experiencing defeat, taking his own life. And part of the reason that Saul was chosen to be king was so that he would lead the people against their enemies. And one of their enemies was the Philistines. And we see in Samuel that he had some gains. He had some wins against the Philistines. But here in chapter 10 of Chronicles, those gains are erased. So as we're, when he, we get to the end of Saul's reign, he owns le, Israel possesses less of the territory than when he began. So his, his reign is a complete failure. Um, so we see all of these negative things about him. He's killed. The archers get him. And then they find, their, find his body. After they'd find his body, they stripped his body, and then they took and cut his head off and put his head in the temple of Dagon. Now, in the ancient world, post-mortem desecration was a big, terrible thing. It was kind of one of the worst things that could happen to you, that after you die, you're kind of dismembered. And what's interesting about the fact that he's, his head is taken and put in the temple of Dagon is sometime before this, when Israel failed and, and, and went into sin, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon. 
And you may remember what happened. They put it in one day. The next morning they come in and the, the idol to Dagon has fallen down and the head of Dagon has been taken off, pops off. And it's clear the message that God is stronger than any other idol, any other God. And so the message is clear there. But here in this passage, we see Saul disgraced. His head is on display. And look at what it says in the text. It says that the messengers went throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. And so his head is on display in the temple of Dagon. What is that demonstrating? They think Dagon has brought them the victory. See, when God's people sin, it seems like the enemy wins. People think that the enemy wins. And they think that Israel has become subservient to this foreign God. And that happens any time we sin. It seems like the enemy wins. The church focuses on the wrong things, more concerned with gossip than godliness. What happens? The church splits. It seems like the enemy has won. Man has an affair. It devastates the family. It seems like an enemy, the enemy has won. Someone gets caught up in addiction that consumes his or her life. It seems like the enemy has won. Christians live life of sin. Christian leaders fall into sin. And the world looks at that and says, Christians are hypocrites. And it seems like the enemy is one. Satan is trying to destroy us. Now for those who are not believers, Satan has the power to destroy our lives. To lead us into destruction. And for those who are our believers who have faith in Christ, he can't destroy us, but he can sure mess with us. He can steal our joy. He can hurt our witness. He can create untold suffering in our life. And it can seem, when we fall into sin, it can seem like the enemy wins. So the Chronicle is clear. Saul is an unmitigated disaster. His kingdom is taken away from him. He commits suicide. His body is mutilated. God is basically done with his family as far as the kingship. But then the question, and I think what's unique about the Chronicler is he tells us why. Why did this happen? Why did all of these bad things happen to Saul? He gives us the reason for the downfall. What did Paul, Saul do that was so serious? The author of Chronicles says that Saul died for his breach of faith. Saul was unfaithful to the Lord, and that unfaithfulness expressed itself in two different ways. Number one, he broke faith with the Lord that he did not keep the command of the Lord disobedience. The incident that the author of Chronicles may be referring to, sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was an incident that happened when the Philistines were pressing upon the Israelites. And rather than wait on Samuel and obey God's destruction, he took matters into his own hands and offered sacrifices to try to earn God's favor, to, to win the victory, so to speak. So Saul falls into sin. He disobeys God. And it's not simply a legal issue. It's also a relational issue. That's why it's, the author says that he broke faith with God. But when we think about disobedience, we often think about it as a legal issue more than a relational issue. So let's say you're driving down the street. You're driving 10 miles over the speed limit. You're breaking the law, and a police officer pulls you over, gives you a ticket. Now, what's your response to that? Maybe you think, oh, shoot, I should have been driving a little bit slower. Or maybe you think to yourself, well, the person next to me was driving faster. Why did I get pulled over and that person didn't get pulled over? Now, whatever your response is to that, you probably don't feel super, super bad about it. I mean, you might not like paying the fine, but you didn't hurt anybody. 
you know, you didn't ruin anybody's day. It was a legal issue. You broke the law. You had to pay, you have to pay a fine. But let's say there's a similar situation. You're driving down the street. You're driving way too fast, and you run somebody over. Now, that's a legal issue. It's also a relational issue because you hurt somebody, maybe even killed that person. And oftentimes when we think about obeying the commands of God, we think about it as kind of a legal issue. God says this, and we don't follow those things. Oh, shucks. I should try to be a better person. I should try to follow those laws. That's really a relational issue. That's why the chronicler says he broke faith with God. The reality was not that he broke commands, so to speak, though he did. He didn't really believe God. He didn't really trust in God. When the enemy was coming against him, his heart gave in to fear, and he, instead of trusting God and obeying what God said, he said, I'm going to take matters into my own hands because I don't think that God is going to really protect me. And that's what, at the root, what sin really is. It's not simply breaking some kind of commandment, although it, you know, God says that we should or shouldn't do certain things. It's not simply breaking a law in that it's a legal thing, it's a relational thing. When we break God's commands, we're saying, God, I don't really trust you. I don't think that you really know what's best for me. I don't think that you're really going to protect me. I don't think that you're really going to satisfy me. And that's what Saul does here. He gives into his fear rather than trusting in God. Jesus asked a convicting question to some relig religious leaders in Luke chapter 6. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Do not do what I tell you. 1 John 2, 4-6, Jesus says this, Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in, him, in which he walked. It's a relational issue. If you know God, your life is going to be changed by that. If you believe in Christ, if you trust in Him, it's going to affect how you live your life. And failure to obey Him means failure to believe and trust Him. It's a relational issue. Now sometimes we think, well, does this mean that we have to earn our salvation, do good works to, to, to get to heaven? That's not what this is saying at all. In fact, Saul is doing good works. He's trying to earn favor with God. He's taking matters into his own hands. But God isn't looking for his sacrifices. He's looking for his heart. Say, so I'm not looking for you to offer sacrifices to me, to try to appease me, to get me to do what you want me to do. I want you to trust me. I want you to believe that I have your best interests in mind. I want you to believe that I'm going to protect you, that I'm going to care for you. But Saul doesn't do that. He disobeys. He breaks faith with God. The second way that he does that is that he, doesn't, he broke faith with the Lord by not seeking guidance from the Lord. It says in verse 13 to 14, he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. As I was reading this passage this week, I was just kind of struck by this. And when I've always looked at kind of this story and especially looking at it from 1 Samuel, you know, you think about what Saul did and you think about it as the fact of where he went to for guidance. It's like he went to this medium or witch for guidance rather than trusting in the Lord. And I've always kind of focused on that. And I've thought to myself, okay, I'm good on that. Like I don't go to a medium, I don't go to a fortune teller, I don't have to worry about that. 
But I think what the writer here is describing is deeper than that. It's not simply where he went to, it's that he didn't seek the Lord. He didn't seek the Lord's wisdom. I mean, yeah, he shouldn't have gone to the medium, but he also shouldn't have gone to anyone else. The same thing is true with us. It's not simply, oh, don't go to a medium, it's don't seek guidance outside of Christ. Ultimate guidance. Now what's interesting is you look at this passage and it says that he didn't seek the Lord. And uh, speaking about this one particular incident in his life when he's uh, about to attack an enemy. Um, but when you look at First Samuel, he actually did seek guidance from the Lord. Um, just before he consulted the medium, uh, it says in the text that he asked of the Lord and the Lord did not answer him which way he should go. Now, how do you reconcile these things? Is it, it, does it mean that one side was mistaken? Are these contradictory? I don't think that's the case at all. And I think Martin, uh, scholar Martin Selman describes it really good this way. He says, verse 14a of First Chronicles does not contradict First Samuel 28.6, but rather illustrates the spiritual truth that God can be sought either single-handedly or not at all. God can be sought either single-handedly or not at all. It's not that Saul never said, Lord, show me what to do. It's not that he wasn't a religious person. Uh, I think of Saul as kind of like a person who uh, is going to the lottery and kind of pick, choosing numbers. Say, God, help me pick the right numbers. That's what Saul does. When he's faced with a difficulty, he's like, God, show me which way I should go to, to win the victory. But his heart is not seeking after the Lord. It's hard to see in seeking satisfaction apart from him. A few weeks ago in the last church in the park, we looked at Psalm 27 where David says this, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and all the days of my life, to gaze upon his, the beauty of the Lord and to choir in his temple. We talked about the question, is Jesus your one thing? Is he the one that your soul seeks after? 1 Chronicles 16.11 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. So it's not about just asking God for guidance as someone would ask a fortune teller or a friend. It's that Saul didn't seek the Lord with all of his heart. He didn't seek the Lord with all of his heart. When it was convenient, when it was expedient, when he thought that maybe the Lord would help him win the battle, then he says, oh, God help me, show me which way I should go. With a normal day-to-day -day life, he was doing things his own way. He was taking matters into his own hands. wasn't seeking the Lord. There's a famous rabbi named Rabbi Baruch. And uh, one day he was with his grandson, and his grandson was playing hide-and-seek. And, seek. and uh, he was playing hide-and-seek with his friend, and his grandson goes and he hides and he's just waiting there and thinks, I found the best hiding spot. My friend can't find me. So he waits, and he waits, and he waits. Finally, he decides he's going to come out from his hiding place. So he comes out, and he finds his friend is doing something else. His friend isn't even looking for him. So he goes to his grandfather with tears in his eyes. And then the rabbi, Rabbi Baruch, began to weep as well. And he says, that's the way God acts. I hide, but nobody wants to look for me. That's what Saul does. He's seeking his own, to, to find his own way. He's not seeking after the heart of God. 
And I have to admit, when I was studying this passage this week, it kind of shocked me, kind of shook me, convicted me. Because when I've looked at the story of Saul um, in 1 Samuel and just kind of thinking about his life, here's what I think about, the apostle, think about Saul. Saul was a bad dude. He did a lot of bad things. He, every, it seemed like every step that he took was wrong. And I think about that, and I'm like, he's a piece of work. And I think about that and think about kind of the negative view which I view him with. Then you get to Chronicles, and I was looking this week, and it's like, so what were the reasons for his downfall? What were the reasons for his destruction? Disobedience. Am I the only one here? Has anybody else ever disobeyed God before? Failure to seek God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is there anyone here? Am I alone? Anybody else who's never sought God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? So I look at this story, and it's like, it's convicting. I mean, Saul's end was destruction. It was destruction because he disobeyed God, and he didn't seek God with all of his heart. And then I've always looked at the contrast between Saul and David. And I think about, again, Saul, like, what a loser. I look at David, and I'm like, I want to be like David. And I like to think I am. I'm like, I want to be slaying giants. I want to be defeating God's enemies. I want to be that guy. And I was, as I was reading this passage this week, I felt like God was saying, here's the reality. You're not David. You're Saul. You're Saul. And I think that's the reality. You and I are Saul. And as we look at this story, the author includes this story. Yes, we shouldn't be like Saul. But he includes the story to point out a need. That there's a need for a David. There's a need for a true king who reigns in righteousness. A true king who will lead God's people in worship. And when the Chronicles was written, the people of God are in exile. They're in exile for two reasons disobedience, failure to seek God, going after other gods. But the Chronicle provides hope. Yes, you may be like Saul, but David is coming. A new king is coming. Same thing is true for us. How do we get ourselves into trouble? Disobedience, failure to seek God. But the truth is, there was another David who came came to the earth and died on the cross for us, lived a sinless life, rose from the grave so that we might have life. The Re- book of Revelation says this about the king in the line of David. It says, Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He had a scroll within on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Ladies and gentlemen, we need a king in the line of David. One who rescues our soul. Theologian James Edwards tells a story about four climbers who were doing something ridiculous. Uh, They wanted to climb the north face of the Swiss Alps, which is thousands of feet uh, up, just 
basically vertical. They're basically rock climbing up. 6,000 feet high. The two German climbers immediately disappeared were never heard from again. The two Italian climbers, exhausted and near death, were stuck on two narrow ledges 1,000 feet below the summit. The Swiss Alpine Club forbade rescue attempts. They were just too dangerous. But a group of people decided they were going to take matters into their own hands. They were going to try to rescue these people. So they carefully lowered a climber by the name of Alfred Hellepart down the 6,000-foot north face. They suspended Hellepart on a cable a fraction of an inch thick and lowered him down into the abyss. Here's how he describes what happened. He says, as I was lowered down the summit, my comrades on top grew further and further distance until they disappeared from sight. At this moment, I felt an indescribable aloneness. Then for the first time, I peered down the abyss of the north face of the Eiger. The terror of the sight robbed me of breath. The brooding blackness of the face falling away in almost endless expanse beneath me made me look with awful longing to the thin cable disappearing about me in the midst. I was a tiny human being dangled in space between heaven and earth. The relief was terror. From terror was my mission to save the climber below. Edward comments on this. He says, that is the heart of the gospel story. We were trapped, but in the person and presence of Jesus, God lowered himself into the abyss of our sin and suffering. In Jesus, God became a tiny human being dangling between heaven and earth. I think the reality is we often begin the Christian life with a recognition of our need. Recognition that in our heart of hearts, we're more like Saul than we are like David. And we begin with that recognition, but as soon as we kind of go a little bit further in the Christian life, maybe we start to experience some success and victory over sin, we start to think, I'm more like Dave than I am like Saul. And we start to kind of take matters into our own hands. Now, again, God doesn't intend to leave us like Saul. His intention is not to leave us like Saul. He changes us and transforms us into his image. But we need to realize in our heart of hearts without Christ, that's who we are. Prone to disobedience, prone to seek other things other than God, and apart from God's work in our, in our lives, that's where we're headed, a destruction. An eternity separated from God. But thanks be to Jesus. Paul said this in Romans seven eighteen. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Here's the reality. Before we can become like the true king, we need to recognize our need for the true king. Before we can become like him, we need to recognize our need for him. And that's what we sometimes fail to do. We feel like we have it all together. We feel like, oh yeah, I make some mistakes here and there. And sometimes God needs to kind of knock us in the head with a two-by-four and say, hey, You are broken. You need me today. Yes, you needed me when you first came to me and I put you back together, but you need me today too. Each day we need to rely on him. The journey in the Christian life is not a journey from dependence to independence. It's a journey from independence to dependence. So as we follow after Christ, if you're following after Christ for 50, 60 years, when you get to the end of your life, you should be more dependent upon Christ than even at the beginning. 
It's not about becoming sufficient in of ourselves, saying, I'm the king, I can figure this out myself. It's every day recognizing that we need Christ in our lives. For two months in 1988, there was a pitcher by the name of Oral Hershiser, and uh, for those two months, he was maybe the best pitcher ever. Um, he took his team to an improbable World Series run, and he posted a .80 ERA. Uh, he was a devout Christian, had been a Christian for a few years, um, always gave the Lord the, the, the credit, knelt on the mound, and thanks for one uh, World Series victory. But this wasn't the first time that he had done really well. Uh, when he was in the minor leagues a few years before, he had po posted a .60 ERA. Um, credible for a pitcher. But something happened, and he describes what happened. He says, I got caught up in the scouting reports, what I read in the papers, and the phone calls from the Dodgers. He said, I stopped praying, and I stopped listening to God. I started going out with the guys and not really having a focus on what I was supposed to be doing. By the time he was done with the next three pitch, pitching assignments, Hershiser's ERA had ballooned to 8.60. It was like God had come down from heaven and hit me over the head and said, you dummy, remember who got you here. Remember where your abilities come from. We do the same thing sometimes. We forget our need for Christ. We forget that we're broken. We're desperate for him. That in our heart of hearts, we're sinners prone to disobedience, prone to go our own way. But thanks be to Jesus. I'd like to read, close with a quote from uh, the medieval, a medieval monk named Bernard. He said this, The faithful know how totally they need Jesus and him crucified. While they admire and embrace in him the charity that surpasses all knowledge they are ashamed at failing to give what little they have in return for so great a love and honor easily they love more who realize they are loved more he loves less to whom less is given indeed the Jew and the pagan are not spurred on by such a wound of love as the church experience who says I am wounded by love and again cushion me about with flowers pile up apples around me for I languish with love before we can become like the true king, we need to recognize our need for him. Let's pray. Lord, here, we're here today and we recognize that we are desperate for you. We recognize that apart from your work in our lives, we're headed for destruction. That our hearts are too prone to wander, too prone to disobedience. Lord, help us to live lives of dependence upon you. Whether we've been walking with Christ for maybe just a short time, or maybe we've been walking with Christ for a long time. Help us to never forget the need for your love, the need for your grace, the need for your gospel to transform us. Because we know in our heart of hearts there's nothing but good that dwells. The only good that comes out of us is what your spirit works in our life. Lord, help us to walk with you each day. By your spirit, change us. Make us into people after your own heart people who obey you, people who seek your heart. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.